Now, back in November, we finished John chapter 15. But you might recall that that story that we wrapped up with in, in chapter 15 was one scene that goes all the way back to chapter 13. And of course, that scene is what we call the upper room, right? Jesus and his disciples in the upper part of the city of Jerusalem in this particular room, the 12 have sat down to celebrate Passover and to share one final meal together before Jesus is arrested and tried and crucified. So let's recall just a few of the highlights we touched on uh, last year. Remember how Jesus first washed the disciples' feet as an example for them. Then he, soon after that, Judas exited the room to betray the master. And while John doesn't cover it, the other gospel writers tell us that it was on this night that Jesus took that loaf of bread and then that cup of wine and he established this amazing ordinance for the church that we know today as communion. But then Jesus shared some difficult news with his friends. I I picture him pausing and he looked in their eyes and he said, I'm with you only for a little while longer. Imagine how, imagine how devastating that would have been. He said, and where I'm going, you cannot follow me. And knowing that that would cause fear and anxiety in his guys, Jesus then set out to bring comfort to their hearts by giving them a series of promises. First of all, I will go and I will prepare a place for you in my father's house. Mm. When I go away, I will ask the father and he will send you another helper like me and he will be with you forever. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You will see me because I live, and because I live, you will live as well. Amazing promises. And at that point, Jesus said, hey, guys, it's time to get up and go, right? It's time to get up and go. And so they left that upper room, and they began to walk towards the Mount of Olives, but Jesus kept teaching on the way as they walked together, teaching and exhorting. And he told his friends that they would continue to dwell in him through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Like branches attached to a vine, if they would abide in that connection, the Spirit would produce spiritual fruit in their lives. And then over and over again, Jesus implored his friends, and we heard it multiple times, two things you must do. Number one, you must love one another as I've loved you. And second, you must obey my commandments. In fact, if you'll do those two things, you will provide credible evidence to the world of who I am and that salvation is found only through me. So at that point, as you step back and you listen to all those promises, you might be tempted to say, well, this is awesome. Being a Christian is just about love and blessing and fruitfulness. Who could say no to that? But then, towards the end of chapter 15, Jesus' teaching took a sharp turn, didn't it? A darker turn. And he began to prepare his friends for the coming of a wave of hatred and persecution. Turns out that their changed relationship with God would also bring about a change Uh, with their relationship with the world system, which hates God and stands opposed to God in every possible way. And so once Jesus is removed from the earth, all that hatred and opposition that had been focused on him was now going to be transferred to the heads of his followers, and they needed to be ready. And that's a big part of the theme that we're going to talk about this morning for us. We need to be ready. Do you have your Bibles yet? All right. John chapter 15, we're going to back up to where uh, the last section we covered back in November. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. We'll start there just so we can get the flow of things, but also because this morning we're only covering four new verses. But it's this all one big idea from the end of chapter 15 into chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. So one big idea. Everybody got there? We're there? It's okay to talk back to the preacher. (laughs) 
I actually like it. Just say nice things. All right, remember as we read through this, this group of men are walking through the streets of Jerusalem, talking together. They're, they're going to go out the city walls into the Kidron Valley and then head north to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that, of course, is where Jesus is going to be arrested. Verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Man, that is such a profound couple of sentences. Highlight those. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Notice the consistency there. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come, come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Wow. What a condemnation, right? But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Underline that phrase, without cause. We'll come back to it. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you, disciples, will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, into chapter 16, our, our passage for this morning Chapter 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. We're going to stop there. So the first thing we need to do with a passage like this is obviously look at the immediate context and say, okay, what was Jesus communicating to those guys at that particular time? And then what we'll do is bridge the historical gap and talk about, well, okay, how do, what principles do we extract from that that we can apply to the modern day context? So let's start with the 11, right? Judas is now gone. The 11, what were they facing that night? Well, as we look at the rest of the story, we know that the disciples... They had no clue what was coming. They had no idea how bad it was going to get. Once their master is taken away and executed, they're going to find themselves completely isolated in a hostile environment with threats from every corner. And of course, we see this because by the time Jesus is crucified, almost all of them, right, are not at the foot of the cross with their master, right? What are they doing? They're hiding away from the authorities. And they have good reason based on history and track record to be fearful. The religious establishment there in Jerusalem had a long track record of persecuting anybody that they perceived as their enemies. Remember, they hated John the Baptist. They got rid of him. Then once John was out of the way, they went after Jesus. And at the core of their actions, all the decisions that these religious leaders take are the sins of pride and envy. Pride and envy. After all, they were the spiritual leaders of Israel, right? They were the ones who oversaw the liturgy and the sacrifices. They controlled the temple. They controlled the synagogues. They said who was in the kingdom and who wasn't. So how do these outsiders, men like John and Jesus, how can they possibly 
challenge their authority. How can they do that? This is the anointed priesthood of God. So how dare that man baptize people without our approval, they said. How dare that man drive out our money changers from the temple courts? How dare he heal people on the Sabbath? And I think what really got under the skin of these religious leaders is just how big the crowds were that left them and went out to see John and then later went out to follow Jesus. So out of pride and envy, the establishment there sought to destroy both of them rather, rather than taking a deep breath, listening, checking the scriptures, and to, to discern whether these were men or who were true prophets of God. They wanted no part of that. They were not even going to listen. And looking back, we know why they weren't able to perceive what God was doing, because they didn't know God. They didn't know God. They knew about God, but they didn't know him. And they didn't follow the law, the very law that they taught. They didn't follow it with clean hands or with a pure heart. So they were simultaneously spiritually blind and dead in their sins. But what you have to see about this is so important. This is a great lesson about religion, about humans and religion. These were outwardly religious men who had very important religious positions, but for all the wrong reasons, with all the wrong motives in the heart. We talk a lot about ministry. When it comes down to ministry, it's, it's what motivates you. What is it that drives you to serve others? That motive in the heart is everything. What did these guys want? They wanted to be admired and applauded by men. They wanted to win seats of favor in the synagogue. They wanted to line their pockets financially. And they wanted to wield power over people, unquestionable power. That's what they wanted. And God hates those things. God hates a wicked heart and empty outward religiosity. We need to know that. And especially when a man drapes himself in religious garb and then falsely claims to be a spiritual guide for others. That type of hypocrisy the Lord despises. And so John would call the Pharisees and Sadducees from Jerusalem a brood of vipers. We looked at that recently. We said, wow, that's really harsh language. Now you know why. They came out to inspect his ministry, to try to check him to try to see his vulnerable points. And he says, you brood of vipers. Later, Jesus is going to call these same men whitewashed tombs, right? You look all polished up on the outside with your, with your religious uh, garments, but inside you're filled with what? Dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. So the 11 men with Jesus that night are going to face hatred and threats from the very same religious establishment that persecuted John the Baptist and now persecuted Jesus, the same wicked group of men who had succeeded in manipulating Rome, manipulating Pontius Pilate to crucify their master. Don't underestimate these men. They're clever. And they pulled it off, didn't they? By God's ordained sovereignty, we know that, but these are powerful, clever men. And Jesus knew it was going to happen. He knew exactly what his friends were going to be facing once he was gone. That's why, look at verse 1 in our text in chapter 16. That's why he's motivated to say this. He says, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Look at that phrase, kept from stumbling. The Greek word there is skandalizo. It's a word that refers to falling into sin. That's usually the context for this verb, stumbling into sin. But it has an additional nuance that's very important. It's usually applied in the context of a surprise, like a trap that gets sprung. So this is what Jesus is worried about, that they're going to be caught off guard, that they're going to underestimate what's coming, and that this trap is going to spring, and they're going to be thrown for a loop by it. 
That's his concern. Spiritually speaking, he's concerned, as we all should be. When persecution comes, we know this from the parable of the sower. Persecution comes, people fall away, don't they? He's concerned about them falling away from the faith because of the pressure that the enemy can bring against them. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, he says in verse 2. Now, for us, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But you have to understand the leverage that the religious authorities had by banning people from the synagogue, the, the power that they had. You'll be banned from worship. Imagine that. You don't have a place to go anywhere in Israel to any synagogue to worship, to pray, to study God's word. That is a very big deal in that particular day and age. Imagine not having a place to go. Imagine being publicly identified by the elders of Israel that you, sir, are a pariah. You, sir, are not welcome. You are a traitor to the state. You are a traitor to your religion. And you know what? If somebody publicly attacks you, so be it. Imagine being put in this position socially. Your friendship's destroyed, right? Your social life, gone. This might even cause your family to turn against you. So these religious leaders have power. They have leverage against people, right? And in that type of environment, you'd be very tempted to just walk away from the faith. I don't need this. In fact, this is the whole, isn't this the whole reason behind the book of Hebrews? Because you had Jews in that day that were under such pressure that, that the argument is don't turn back. Don't go back because we have a better way in Christ. Do not retreat. But that's the pressure that these people were feeling. I'm just going to walk away from it because, you know what, then the pressure is off of me, then my life is restored, I have safety and security once again. You can imagine the temptation. By the way, we know Christian converts all over the world today face this very same type of pressure. If you're a believer in China or somewhere in the Middle East or Southeast Asia, oftentimes you have to make a very hard decision to stay committed to Christ and suffer greatly social consequences, your physical safety at risk. But people all over the world do that today. Man, we are very blessed in this country, aren't we? That we don't face that pressure. But it's happening all around the world today. So Jesus warns in verse four. He says, these things I've spoken to you, listen, so that when their hour comes, okay, when they get power over you, when I'm gone, when their hour comes, you'll remember what I've told you. So I'm warning you, he says, don't be surprised. Don't let that trap spring on you and be caught off guard. When you feel that wave of persecution coming, remember what I said to you this night. I predicted it. This is important for any disciple, even us. Listen, no circumstance is outside of the, the foreknowledge of Christ, right? Or his, out of his sovereign control. And so when these things happen, remember. Remember what I said. Let it strengthen you that I knew this was coming and that I predicted it. So when it happens, you'll go, bing, I get it. I expected this. I'm not caught off guard. That's what's going on here. And by the way, this would come true, right? We, we know the rest of the story. This would come true. All you have to do is read Acts chapter 3 through 7, and you'll see the persecution come against the early believers. Threats, beatings, arrests, floggings, imprisonment. Particularly, we see it for Peter and John, right? And then, of course, Stephen is martyred. Stephen is actually put to death because of his faithful testimony before who? The high priest of Israel. He's put to death. Later in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul will talk about having received what he calls the 39 lashes. And we know historically that was a distinctive punishment that was meted out by synagogue officials. So Paul suffered it as well. 
But what you see in response to each one of those cases is what? Boldness in the faith. They're bold, right? The, the disciples weren't shaken by it. They didn't back down from it. In fact, they rejoiced in that moment that they were able to share in the sufferings of Christ. And so the good news is they remember Jesus' words and they didn't back down. They responded well. And we need to do that as well. I, I understand that the, the, the immediate context is back in that year, but we need to be ready as well in our day. And we'll get to that in just a second. Now, that's the original 11 disciples. What about the next generation of disciples? What about us? Well, the original 11 and later Paul not only endured that persecution, but they warned the next generation that, yes, it's going to fall on you as well. Here's how Paul explained it to his protege, Timothy. He said, Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them, out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Look at that statement then. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So he doesn't say, look, uh, yeah, fell on me, but that's the end of it. No, it's going to continue on to you. You were eyewitness to how much I had to suffer for the name of Christ, how much I had to be persecuted because of, because of the truth of the gospel. So realize if you follow in my footsteps, if you're faithful in the ministry, it's going to happen to you as well. So be prepared. Now, to be sure, God is the one who determines the measure of persecution we suffer, right? And so that's going to differ in different places, in different ages. But the point of all this is you will suffer. The world's hatred for Jesus absolutely guarantees that in every generation of disciples, there will be some measure of hostility. And all the more so as we live for him and put ourselves out there in the public square. All the more so as we put the gospel out there in the marketplace of ideas. Who's ready to do that? There's a desperate need for it today. But we have to understand what the consequences are. What's sad to me is that Christians in this country have grown so soft and so entitled that any amount of pushback from the world right now draws out whiners and complainers as if somehow we're entitled to the world's affirmation as if we're somehow entitled to their approval and ease of life. We get super, we become, we, we make ourselves out to be victims <laughs> as Christians in this country. Can you imagine when we get any pushback at all? It's silly. What does Peter tell the church? He says, beloved, don't be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, church, understand this is normal. This is to be expected. And you have to know in the history of the church, our situation in America, in this era, is extremely unusual because we haven't had to suffer much. But we'd better get ready. We'd better be prepared for what's coming down the road. As Jesus warned the 11, as Paul and Peter later confirmed, we, in this day, cannot let persecution surprise us or catch us off guard. Honestly, I think the church in general is paying a price right now for decades and decades of very squishy teaching on this subject. The whole charismatic movement, the whole church growth movement was so focused on our blessings and our comfort and our prosperity that it almost disappeared all of the teaching about suffering for the faith. 
And I think we're going through it now because of that. Christians in this country don't study much church history. They just don't know their history. And most churches haven't taught on this principle. And I fear because of that, many in the past have deconstructed. They've fallen away because, hey, it got hard. And I feel like in the future, if we don't get better at this, teaching this principle of suffering for the faith, many are going to be harmed in the future. So we're going to try to do better than that here at Oak Hill. Amen? Now, let me share with you something that that may catch you by surprise, something you haven't considered. The hatred and hostility that followers of Christ have endured throughout the generations have mostly come from people who are religious. It's It's not the atheists. It's primarily those who have religious tendencies. Look at the second half of verse 2 in our text. Jesus says, An hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Religious. Again, the immediate context here, Jesus is saying to the 11, look, persecution is going to come first from the Jewish community, right? From those who claim to worship Yahweh. Not only are they going to ban you from the synagogue, they are going to, they're going to physically try to harm you. In fact, maybe even try to kill you. And still... This is amazing. Be convinced in their mind that they're serving God. They're going to murder you and say this is an offering to God. That word service in the original Greek is the normal word that you would use for ministry that a priest would render at the altar of God. It's like a blood sacrifice. So imagine this. In the minds of some, executing a heretic would be viewed as a blood offering unto the Lord. And if you go back and you search the ancient Mishnah, of Judaism, you'll find many statements to that effect. That was true. And we don't have to look away from the Bible to know that that principle was widely regarded. Consider Paul before he became Paul, before his conversion. What did he do? How did he view his persecution of the church? He admits it. He says in Philippians 3, I was a persecutor of the church. To Timothy, he wrote, I was formerly a blasphemer and a violent aggressor. But Prior to his conversion, when he was killing Christians, that's not how Paul felt about it. He was firmly convinced in his mind, even at the death of Stephen, that he was acting faithfully as a Jew, serving God through murder. Serving God through murder. And listen, we can go back into the Old Testament to prove the same thing as well. Who was it that persecuted and killed the prophets? God's people. Amazing, right? 2 Chronicles 24 tells us that when the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah the prophet, the text says he stood above the people and he said to them, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord? And he says, because you've forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Well, how'd they feel about that? At the command of the king of Israel, the people who heard his voice laid hold of Zechariah and they stoned him to death in the house of God. That's shocking. In Jeremiah 26, we read about a prophet named Uriah who prophesied against the leaders of Judah alongside Jeremiah. The text says that when the king of Judah sent his mighty men to grab hold of Uriah, quote, they brought Uriah from Egypt. They led him to King Jehoiakim who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Religious people can be the worst persecutors of the church. This is why Jesus confronted them 
with these words, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then later, lamenting over the city of Jerusalem, he says, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. Imagine God's position on this. I send my messenger and my own people kill him. Imagine God's holy city being known as the place where that happens, that we murder those that God sends our way. We need to learn from this. Now, it's easy to pick on the Jews for this because there's so many examples, but guess what? The church hasn't done any better over the generations. After the Roman Emperor Constantine secured safety and power for the church, guess what happened? The wicked parts of the church persecuted the faithful parts of the church. The, the cycle continues. Athanasius of Alexandria, the greatest theologian of his day, was persecuted and pursued by his enemies. Who were they? Other bishops in the church. <laughs> Five times he was banished from the empire, forced to go out into the deserts of Egypt and live as a hermit in order to save his life. Amazing. What was his crime, by the way? Studying the scriptures, arguing for the deity of Christ and for Trinitarian theology. The bishops of the church tried to kill another bishop over theology. History continues. I don't have time to enumerate all the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church in their efforts to silence and do away with faithful voices of Reformation. Just look at the Inquisition. That's enough, right? Imagine the identified Church of Christ using literal torture as a means of serving God. It boggles the mind, doesn't it? We look back and we can't believe it. This long roster of men that the Catholic Church not only persecuted but put to death and in every case, the tormentors believed they were serving God in doing so. So how does this happen? Well, Jesus shows us. Look at verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Ah, let this be a lesson for us. Just because somebody is religious doesn't mean they know God. No matter what people claim, no matter their religious garments or how involved in ministry they appear to be, the persecutors of God's people do not know him personally. They do not. They may be very religious. They may make all kinds of claims about how much they love God, but the wicked fruit of their life reveals the truth. Always look at the fruit. Always look at the fruit. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the early bishops of Arianism, the cardinals and popes of the Catholic Church, what do they have in common? Not that they want to glorify God or shepherd God's people. What they want, what they lust for, is authority and power and wealth and control. All the fleshly desires of man, and they will answer to God for all of it. But this is the history. We need to know that. So how does that apply to us today? What about us? Are there people persecuting Christians today and still believing that by doing so they're serving God? Well, certainly that's happening in Islamic countries all over the world, right? Christians are regularly threatened, harassed, even killed. And, and, and Muslims will, of course, attribute that to Allah, who they believe to be God. We know that that's happening. But in Western countries like America, we're facing a growing threat that is very different, but still very, very dangerous. And this is what we need to be careful about. On the surface, what we see around us in America today doesn't feel like religion, but I have news for you. We talked about this, Adam and I talked about this on the underground. What we're seeing happen in our country today has many features and many components 
of organized religion. It just doesn't claim the name of God. And what I'm talking about, of course, is all the forms of modern-day leftism that is coming at us right now. I'm speaking about the incredibly powerful LGBT lobby. I'm talking about the exploding trans movement. All the secular uh, materialists, the moral revolutionaries. These are groups that are hell-bent on destroying the family, for example. Hell-bent on destroying the institution of marriage. Hell-bent on obliterating all distinctions between men and women. And what we're seeing now, more and more, and some of you have recognized it, this so scary is this, this growing normalization of pedophilia. We're seeing it happen all around us. And so what we're seeing, and, you, and again, we've got to pay attention. They're the fulfillment of what Isaiah warned about. Isaiah said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That is our world today. And, and there's all kinds of titles. You can, you can file this under the term wokeism if you want, or Maybe a more technical phrase would be cultural Marxism, which is, which is probably better. But it is utterly destructive to society. And guess what? You and I as Christians, we are in their crosshairs. You know why? Because we stand in the way of their agenda. We're the speed bump in their desire to transform the world in their image. And as you hear that, you might hear the echoes of what we would call mission-minded evangelism. Because that's what they're about. They're seeking converts just like we are. And if you, you fool yourself into thinking that's not happening, you're, 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 you're covering your eyes intentionally. They're seeking converts. Listen, at the end of the day, we are in a spiritual battle. That's raging all around us. But here on earth, we're in a battle of worldviews. It's raging all around us. Our opponents in the fight don't acknowledge a divine God figure because they worship only themselves, right? Right? and their lusts of the flesh, but it's man-made religion at its core, and it's powerful because behind them, propping it up and moving all of this forward is Satan. We know that, right? There's only two spiritual powers in the world. The powers of darkness are pushing this movement forward, but from an earthly perspective, they have every Western institution behind them right now. This is what makes it powerful, right? They've got the government behind them and newspapers, and cable news, and social media, and Hollywood, and universities. And, this won't be a surprise, liberal churches and liberal Christians. They're all in the leftist camp, and they're lined up against Christ, and they're lined up against you and I on these issues. This is why we cannot underestimate persecution. Even in our day, even as we feel safe in this building, we know there's a wave coming. You're in their sights. Now, you might object. You might say, but yeah, I get it, Jeff, but this isn't really religious. Can I just tell you it actually is? It's just a different form of religion. You have to take note of this. For example, they have essential doctrines. They push essential doctrines. They say these cannot be questioned. They make faith claims that people are required to believe. For example, all Love is love, they say, and, and trans women are women, and men can get pregnant. Don't question it. Those are our essential doctrines. There's no room for debout, de, uh, doubt or debate on those things. And then they employ preachers to go out into the public square and to go on TV and to preach their truth and demand that people believe the things that they claim. It's happening. 
I know it's not religious in the way we tend to think of religion, but see it as a system of belief, a system of faith. Somebody made a real, I saw this yesterday on Twitter, an incredible observation. How many of you have wondered, where did this whole drag queen thing come from? Have you noticed it's now everywhere? I, I never knew America had so many drag queens. But they're going all over the place, aren't they? And they're doing family-friendly shows in places like public libraries. Well, somebody made the observation, these are missionaries. They're missionaries for the left. And they're trying to now indoctrinate children and to make them as comfortable as possible in all of this. It's religious in nature. So make no, make no mistake, it is a religious system and a worldview, and it seeks to destroy the, the Christian foundation that has undergirded Western civilization for 2,000 years now. So it's no joke. And you and I are in the way. So we can't underestimate this, right? Expect in the future the enemy's gonna keep pushing, is gonna keep slandering us, gonna keep threatening us. And remember what Jesus said. I know it was 2,000 years ago, but it still applies. He said, these things I've spoken to you, so when their hour comes, and it's here, you may remember that I told you about them. Don't be caught off guard. Make sense? Now, in face of that reality, what do we do? Let, let's get practical. What do we do? Well, there's a whole bunch of things. First of all, we cannot allow opposition and persecution to cause fear in us or to cause us to withdraw or retreat from the battlefield. We have to continue to speak truth. Right? We talked about it last week at the park. We are to be an influence on society. Our voices need to be in the public square. Okay? We can't retreat. But we also have to continue to be motivated by the right things, by compassion for the lost, for love of neighbor. Always remembering that that, that person who right now may be yelling at you about what they believe, they are headed for hell. And that ought to cause us to be compassionate and to love. And we got to talk about hard things. We have to be willing to put ourselves out there and talk about things like sin and judgment and repentance and salvation. Got to stand firm in the faith and trust that God is going to work through our witness in some way, according to his sovereign will. That pressure is not on us. God will do what God is going to do. And listen, we have to remember that as we go out there into the world, we are bringing a message, proclaiming Jesus, who the world hates. They do. They hate him. And they hate his father. And we have to remember that. So we carry a message that is going to, it's guaranteed to stir up hostility. It's guaranteed, right? But that's nothing new. Again, don't be a victim. Don't whine and complain about this. Look what Noah dealt with in his day. Yeah, nobody listened to Noah. They, they, threw, they abused him, didn't they? Oh, you're building an ark, are you? Right? This is not new for God's people. Look at the prophets who suffered as they shared the truth. Look at John the Baptist. Look at Paul. Consider all of them. We're in good company if we suffer persecution. And the more closely that we're identified with Jesus, both with our words and with our actions, the more we're going to attract persecution from the world. You have to ask yourself this fundamental question. Am I okay with that? Could I rejoice in that suffering, sharing in the sufferings of Christ? I shared this last week at the park, and and I think it's so, so important. We should be such a bright light for Christ in this dark world that as we go around, as we share the gospel, one of two things will happen. One, we'll be persecuted for Christ's sake for saying it, 
or two, people will bow their knee and receive Christ by faith. But what we can't do is just let this community around us be apathetic and neutral about it. We need to be the one that go out there and shake it up to cause people to do one of those two things, either persecute me or accept Christ. That is really the mission of the church in these last days. Make sense? One last caveat before we wrap up. And, and this is so that we make sure that we're being balanced in this whole discussion. The reason you and I are hated by the world is very, very important. The reason. We have to get this right. Recall Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you because of you. No, 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 no. He says, because of me. And then once again from John 15, they have both seen and hated me and my father as well, but they've done this to fulfill the word that's written in their law. They hated me without cause. They hated me without cause. It's important that that's true of us as well, that if we're going to be hated, that we'll be hated because of Jesus and not because of us. That's an important distinction, that we're hated without a cause. In other words, for no reason other than the fact that we are faithfully proclaiming Christ in love, with a heart of compassion in what we say and what we do and in our posture towards people. If we can be clear in our conscience about that, about our motivation, that we've done all we can, then we can receive that persecution, right? But not if we're obnoxious. Not if we're the stumbling block in people's lives because of Jesus. So here, here's something that I, I found this Christians don't often like to talk about this. Jesus taught about two principles which um, at times can feel like they're contradictory. One, you're going to have enemies, and two, you have to love them. We, we like the first one, the second one, eh, not so much. We don't like that love your enemies, but Jesus taught them both. So I found in my experience that we don't often balance this well. On the one hand, you'll find that stereotypical Christian who does accept the fact that the world hates him and he's going to have enemies. But he tends to be obnoxious about it. Right? He tends to look around and denounce everything and everybody and go on Facebook and do a rant about how awful the world is. And then when he gets blowback from people because his attitude is poor, he says, see, I'm on track. I'm making the world angry. Is that true? That person is always in battle mode. He's seeking out enemies, but he doesn't have much room in his conduct for love for those enemies. So these folks exhibit a lot of courage, but little compassion. And listen, here's a clue. If you are offending everybody, you're probably out of balance. Now, there's an egregious error on the other side. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the stereotypical Christian who has great compassion and great love in their hearts, and they, they're quick to turn the other cheek, right, and to find common ground with people. They're fully prepared to love, but they don't have a robust view of what love actually is. Right? In their mind, love is unconditional approval of anything. Right? They think love doesn't, doesn't mean we can challenge people's faulty assumptions. These are folks who exhibit a lot of compassion but not a lot of courage. And so if you never offend anyone, you're probably out of balance as well. Does that make sense? So we have to walk this really fine line through this world as we share our testimony, as we expect persecution, from a heart of compassion, that's important. From a heart of compassion, we stand up and we speak the truth about God and about sin and judgment and repentance and salvation. 
And when we're hated in response for it, what do we do? We don't return evil for evil. We return evil with a blessing. That's the hard part. And then we come back to where we started. We speak more truth, right? And that cycle may have to go around a number of times, right? As we, we speak truth and we express concern for people and we get pushback and maybe we get persecuted, but we return with a blessing and we speak more truth. That's the process. And at the end of the day, as we, as we do that well, and I know it's a fine line and sometimes we can make errors in that, the Spirit's either going to make us a fragrance of life for some people or He's going to make us the aroma of death for others. But that's up to God. That's up to God. Our job is just to be faithful to do it, to do it well, to be prepared, and to do it with the right proper motivation, which is love for the lost. Amen? Again, if the world is going to hate us, make sure they hate us because of Jesus and not because of us. All right, as we wrap up, I want to just read a couple verses from this morning's call to worship from James. Now that we've talked about persecution... I want you to listen to this with fresh ears. Here's what James writes. Count it all joy, my brothers. Joy. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How many of you guys want that in your life? You want steadfastness. Are you willing to be tested? Are you willing to suffer through hardship and count it joy? And let that steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under persecution. Steadfast. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's the ultimate goal. Amen? Good to have you back at Pico. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning, for the way it challenges us, the way it convicts us. Thank you for the way it warns us as well, the way it tells us what's coming down the road and how we ought to respond to it. It's so practical. God, I thank you for the example that we have in the disciples who heard Jesus' instructions, who remembered his words, and who were not thrown off by, by threats and floggings, but rejoiced. Lord, may we at Oak Hill Bible Church, as we come back into this community, develop a, a, a softer heart for the lost that live here. May we not step back from the battle, but step into it, loving people, but also being willing to receive that, that hatred and hostility because we love you. Help us to walk that fine line well today, Lord. As we go out this week and we talk to people, help us to walk that line of truth and love. Thank you for our time this morning, Lord. May we continue to worship you well with not just our lips, but with our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.